This is Madria Steven with the Working with Woes podcast. And we are in the midst of the Basement Child series. This will be the last episode in that series. And I have shared a lot of my background, a lot more than I'm used to sharing. And I have expressed um, the traumas that I've been through in foster hell and also growing up with my biological parents. And I've also shared their background so that the patterns can be discussed a little bit later as I get into the psychology and the neuroscience aspects later on. To end this Basement Child series, I thought it may be helpful to discuss the emotional components of the things that I've endured for so long. Because a lot of people just listen to the events and then they brush it off and think I should be over it because I'm not there anymore. However, these are my memories and this is my childhood. So as soon as people start talking about their childhood and how great it was and they're playing with their friends and their parents loved them and, you know, they had their needs met, this is what feels often shoved in my face. It's like, look, I had this and you didn't. And it's not presented that way. Sometimes it is. And that's just because people are being morons. But when it's not presented that way, people are clueless. They know my background and they still have no idea the emotional suffering that continues today. Because unfortunately, as soon as you say childhood, you're going to think of childhood, right? And these are memories from my childhood. That is what my childhood encompasses is the entire previous four episodes of the Basement Child series. Not a lot of love, some fun with my friends, yes, but uh, definitely no no needs met and no love at home. So the emotions that accompany trauma, they linger and they're often very severe and they rise quickly and last longer for people with PTSD or CPTSD. So what I mean by that is let's say there is conflict. For me, I don't want to be around conflict. I mean, I can playfully argue or I can have a discussion as long as I know it's safe. But if I feel uncomfortable or the tension starts to mount or people are starting to get aggressive, I want to bail and I usually will. I will just leave. I'm trying to break that pattern and I've done pretty good with learning how to handle and resolve conflict or even mitigate it altogether. However, there's lasting emotional impacts and these are that I will lose sleep a lot more easily than the average person and I will feel uncomfortable for way longer because I never learned how to cope with the long-term effects of my PTSD. I was just thrown into one negative thing after another, after another, after another, till I was about, you know, graduating high school. So I was already a young adult. So I always felt lost and um, it's hard to accept help in my 30s because help my whole life did not equal help. Even at school, When I asked for food, some of the classmates would make me do favors in order to get the food. I didn't always do them because they weren't always legit, especially in high school. The guys definitely tried their uh, hand to get what they wanted just for food, and I chose starvation. I was like, I am not going to touch your penis for a sandwich or actually anything. 
see ya. So people were mean. Even my friends were a bit mean about it sometimes. The difference between people and my friends is that my friends did help. They did have my back and I knew them for a long time, but they just didn't understand the high needs that I always had. Whereas general people didn't even try to care and they didn't have my back. So there's the difference between general people and my friends. So along with CPTSD comes self-loathing and self-blame. So no matter what I did, if I tried to smile because the evil pastor asked why I didn't smile at home, um, my biological mother would be like, what are you smiling about? And wipe that smile off my face no matter what it took. If I went zombie-like and unresponsive, which was my go-to, then I got in trouble for pouting. If I cried, I got in trouble for crying. If I didn't cry, I got in trouble for not crying. And I was always blamed for everything. I was a scapegoat to the narcissistic, traumatic parents, as well as to the foster help people. And that's just what I learned to be, because that's all I knew from birth on. So there's a lot of self-blame. Like, I truly believed that I deserved what I got. I believed that I was evil because I was physically underdeveloped, because I was nutritionally deprived. I didn't know that's what I was. But, um, you know, all these negative things were reinforced everywhere I went. And there was constant fear, always constant fear. I always had to watch what I say. So I praised my parents and my siblings. I defended them when people said they were abusive in foster help. You know, people would be like, well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so because, uh, you know, and they were just as bad because they weren't looking out for my well-being at all. And they knew my background and they acted like they were better. So they were just as bad, actually. So there was constant fear, constant dread and constant rejection. Like, no matter what I did, I was never fully accepted or loved. And my stomach was upset all the time. There's just this constant tension in my central nervous system. And part of that probably came from lack of thermal regulation because I didn't have a jacket in the winter. I wandered the streets late at night when it was cold. And then I also wasn't fed properly, like nobody really cared to make sure I got my nutrients. So all of those things combined do activate the central nervous system, which prevents a person from even being able to relax. So there's constant tension and fear, and that does impact my neural development, but I will go into that later. The tricky thing was that I thought my upbringing was normal. Until that day that I ran away when I was 13, and I talked about that in the last podcast. Seeing my friends' reactions to the very, very little that I said kind of showed me this, that my feeling that this wasn't right and my wanting to get out of there was legit because it wasn't normal. Even the day that I ran away and my friend's mom, how she responded and was like, yeah, sure, she can stay over. Just was like, why doesn't my mother do that? Why doesn't my mother let me have people over? Yeah, there was a lot of restriction and I was deprived, extremely deprived socially, isolated in that room, um, deprived of stimulants, no light in that room, no radio, 
nothing. So I read. I smuggled books in and I read books from school and then I returned them. And I was deprived of expression. I was deprived of nutrition because a large part of the food that I had was not healthy. It was rotten just because. So just all aspects of life I was deprived in during my critical developmental periods. Almost every single one of them, except for the last part of the last critical developmental period. So I was quite misunderstood and unhelped, which kind of reinforced that I was unlovable and not worth the effort of help or any apologies. And I still feel this as an adult. I grew up living that and not deserving it as a child because I was just born. That was my mistake and I sure didn't have a say in that because do you think I would choose to be born in a family like that? No thank you. If I had a say, I would have chosen nice people that loved me right from the get-go and met my needs. The biggest trouble that I have today is that nobody can relate. It's true, nobody can relate unless you've been through it, but that is the worst thing you can say to somebody who is hurting, especially when you're trying to reach out for, for them to trust you and express their feelings and, and try to bond with you. So that's my note to Pollyanna's. My first note is do not ever tell people nobody can relate or nobody will ever relate. Because that tells people, we don't believe you and you should be over it and just act like it's normal because we don't want the garbage that you come with. And it's not helpful and not healing at all. It's not validating. Something that would be helpful would be like, I'm really sorry that this is what you've had to endure. Is there something maybe that you wanted to do as a kid that you could still do now that would be fun? Or... How can we redeem some of these moments together? You know, something like that. How can we overwrite some of these experiences right now before it's too late while well, we still can? Something like that where there's a joining of people, not, well, isn't it good that I'm doing well? Well, yeah, it's good that you're doing well for you, but I'm not doing well. And I don't need to be overly aware of how you're doing well for yourself. I need to grow and I need a little help doing that. So there's a lot of shock for me, especially going into that neuroscience degree and I will be talking about that. And I have an interview with a neuropsychologist, Brian Kolb, and we do talk a little bit about the neuroscience of adverse childhood experiences over the course of development and possibilities of revamping that through early intervention or cognitive behavioral therapy. That's coming a bit later on. Very interesting podcast, so tune in for that. There's a lot of resentment too, because it's like, well, what did I do so wrong? Because I know I'm innocent. I was not a terrible child. I was not, I didn't vandalize. I didn't break and enter. I didn't talk back. I gave my art to my parents. I tried to accept the blame that wasn't mine to carry. And I kept all the secrets and uh, internalized everything and I don't know I was just so accommodating I was such a people pleaser I didn't deserve what I got and then there's despair because I'm always trying to self-improve and I'm always trying to heal 
and learn about how to do better, how to do better, how to just reach normalcy. And it feels like it's never ending because people don't get what it's like to have such memories in my head. And it's not like they're just memories. Like people tend to forget things from their childhood very easily, I've realized, because they just don't care because it's just normal and they've had everything kind of handed to them. Not everyone, but a lot of people that I seem to be surrounded with definitely do. But I don't. I remember things very, very, very well. Very visually and very, very well. It doesn't scare me as much as it used to. I used to have nightmares. I used to have like a jumping or a startle reflex. And it was pretty big. But So I've gotten a lot better. Even with hugging. I, I do hug sometimes. I'm not really a huggy person though. But... You know, I've gotten better. I've, I've made leaps and bounds, but it seems like my progress doesn't matter because I'm still so far behind in life. And so with that comes this following loneliness. Yes, I am capable of making friends and I've always had a lot of friends just until recently. Um, this is the first time in my life that I've not had a lot of friends um, a big group to reach out and for us to mutually reach out and hang out and do stuff together every week. So I feel perhaps a bit more extra lonely. I do have friends, but it's just different. Part of that comes with adulting and getting older. And part of that just comes with where I'm at. You know, like each city is different. You know, I don't know. But there's this overriding loneliness that has carried with me through all the groups of friends that I've had. And it's because I see their parents loving them. I have seen my friend's mother cry over her daughter, my friend's sister, and express the hurt that she has on behalf of that girl. And it breaks my heart because my mother didn't do that. My mother is the worst person in my life and she's not sorry. She would still hurt me if she could today. So there's this emptiness because I know that I'm not loved and with my family, I never will be. So with that comes helplessness. I feel so stuck because I don't know how to cope with these emotions that nobody can help me with, right? Because people have formed the normal bonds with their family friends became more important to me than I was to them because they were my family. So I was easily shafted, still am, and you know, oh, oh yeah, sorry, no, this, uh, I have to cancel last minute kind of thing. Whereas I keep my, my schedule clear and I'm perhaps over accommodating because people are more important to me than I am to them. And I don't know how to change that because I need relationships and I am trying to learn to love myself and I think I'm doing well in some ways and education definitely helped. Knowing the truth makes a huge difference. It was shocking and no, it doesn't make me feel good to know that this is my life and nobody can relate, but there is a certain benefit to it that... I can't really be lied to in this regard anymore. And my biological family cannot hurt me anymore because now I know 
that is abuse. And I do know the difference between abuse and people just being normal and making mistakes. And that's what I learned in the long-term friendships that I've maintained over the years. So I guess with that helplessness, there comes this lack of closure. How do I forgive people who are not sorry? How do I forgive people who would still hurt me? Social services gets away scot-free because they're the government. How do I forgive that? How do I move on? How do I feel worth it like everyone else is? So I feel way far below everyone else in terms of quality and value because life has taught me that everyone else is better because most people that I know have had it way easier, way easier. Or they've had some trouble, but it's been like one or two things over a short term. Not as long as mine and not so endlessly repetitive. So there's just no restitution. There's no justice. And I can't legally pursue anyone because too much time has passed from when I was 14. Even though I just learned about it a few years ago in my neuroscience degree. and through reading the files from social services, because the two were in tandem, and I'm glad they were. The greatest silver lining, I suppose, (laughs) of such a background is that there is a sharp clarity in what love is not. Because people put on facades of love. Foster parents, they lied, they acted so accepting when I met them with the social worker, and then they turned in the blink of an eye when the social worker wasn't there. They lied. That's not love. It's deception. And also people who say, you know, when I'm hurting, and they say, oh, you know, you should be over it because you're not there anymore. You're strong, you're past it, don't let your past haunt you. I'm sorry, this is my development. These are the only memories I have of childhood. And yes, they are haunting me because I carry them. So I didn't deserve it. Sure, that's true. But these people made decisions and I have to bear the consequences. And it seems like the more I try to get help, the more I have to carry them alone, which adds to the burden. And yes, I have been to counseling, but professionals have said, "Uh, this is out of my scope. I haven't been trained for this. I don't know how to help you. And I don't know anybody who can. And I've heard that time and time again. And I cannot express how discouraging that is. So I decided, you know what? Screw you. I'm going to be my own counselor. Because you guys are freaking expensive. And I work hard for every freaking penny that I have. Just to hear these supposedly professionals say it over and over. I can't help you. Your pain is too much. I don't know what to say. I can't relate. Those are all things I've heard. Direct quotes. Not cool. So I'm going to save my pennies for self-care. And I'm going to learn what I can do to help myself. My biggest accomplishment through all of this is surviving. (laughs) My survival rate is 100% so far. That is not to say that I've always been resilient. There are times that I tried to commit suicide and it's because the situation gets overwhelming and there is no help. So there's a difference between clinical depression, which is where things seem to go right and 
it's like, why am I depressed? If you're asking that because things are going well, you may be clinically depressed. That's just a maybe, right? That's not a diagnosis. Situational depression is where when life sucks, you're depressed. And that's what I've had my whole life long. And that's not to put a label on it. I don't think that emotional distress should be labeled as much as it is in today's society. And meds don't help. Life, life quality helps. So my brother, his life was going well. He seemed to have everything and he hit some pretty heavy depression during med school. And I had circumstantial things that brought me down and in that moment I did reconnect with him and rehash some hurts that I had still felt the effects of which he actually apologized for and for him to apologize is a pretty big deal because he never used to apologize so that shows growth on his part and then it showed growth on my part to accept that apology as sincere whether or not he makes mistakes again in the future right because we're all human and to express that to him and mean it. <laughs> that was after a time of distance because I realized certain things were not healthy and I actually put a pause on that relationship and then reconnected and hashed everything out so that I wouldn't carry it forward. And that to me is huge because I'm surviving things without a need for revenge. I don't need to make people hurt. People have asked, oh, if your mother was in a room and you were in there with her and you could do whatever you wanted and there was no negative consequence whatsoever, what would you do? And I would often say, what would you do? And they would say, oh, I'd beat her or, oh, you know, she needs to be eaten and spit out or, you know, just like these hurtful things. And I said, you know what I would do? I would hug her. That's what I would do because she knows hatred and she knows abuse both to receive it and to give it. And I don't want to be like that. I do not want to be like that because I have suffered at the hands of other people. And sometimes when you're innocent in something, it's harder to get over it than if you're guilty. So I don't have that need for revenge. That's my biggest accomplishment. Honestly, it really is. So with my brothers, like I don't need to make them hurt. I've always been implosive where I'd rather hurt myself than anyone else, whereas other people tend to be explosive through their words or actions where they want to hurt somebody else instead of themselves. Psychology is helpful because I have studied now and realized some very important aspects of human nature, and sometimes that makes it easier to forgive it when people are being stupid and also to recognize when I'm not forgiving myself for being stupid. Because let's face it, we all make mistakes. The biggest thing is that I need to learn that I'm not a mistake. And that's hard. <laughs> Especially when I'm surrounded by Pollyannas who just don't get emotional suffering or previous physical abuse, the imprints of trauma. Those are the emotional aspects and there is a resilience there. It's like the dandelions versus orchids. Dandelions are resilient. They can grow anywhere. And orchids are very fragile. They need extremely specific care. I'm a dandelion, which is fine because I used to pick them as a kid and I liked the way they smelt, the little yellow ones. 
So this is the journey that I'm on. One of the things that I question is like, what did I do so wrong in the eyes of God to be placed in that situation as a baby? I hear sometimes some similar stories where, you know, somebody kind of endured similar experiences, but for a shorter time, they were rescued at the age of eight, or they were rescued at the age of 12, or like my brother, rescued at the age of seven, and my other brother rescued at the age of five. I was never rescued. If you're a Pollyanna, just know that being careful with your words will help a lot. Words matter, and they do give life or death, and it is yours to choose to give or to accept from other people. So this is my tip for other people with PTSD or CPTSD, is to keep the dignity of Pollyannas intact. Just because their hands in life were much better than yours doesn't mean that you need to become their trauma. And they're going to be extremely sensitive. So something that is tiny to you might be too much for them to handle. And yes, they will seem stupid and frustrating and like a big baby, but it's not up to you to judge them or to alter their reality. You can be the best you can be. And for Pollyannas, you can be the best you can be. It would be helpful if you guys learn what love really is. Okay, so that's the emotional aspect. That is the last episode of The Basement Child. With the next episode, it's going to be called The Shocks of Normalcy. And I will be delving into living with Carl and Cecile, who kind of scooped me up before I went back to the streets at the age of 16. And... I ended up working two jobs and putting myself through high school. So I'll talk a little bit about the um, self-sabotaging behaviors that I had and how Cecile's consistent determination to love me anyway paid off. So I'm looking forward to talking about that because that's a lot more hopeful and positive than talking about my biological family and other people who are not sorry. Cecile honestly had a heart for me right off the bat and she chose me right from the beginning and so I'm going to be very happy to share some of those aspects of our growth together and even Carl's growth because he was pretty distant and just left it in her hands which was a pretty big statement of trust on his part towards Cecile. I'm looking forward to sharing the more hopeful stuff because this has been difficult but this is the worst of it. I think now it'll get more interesting as we talk about learning and brain plasticity and body development and spirituality and matters of the heart and learning how to love people who are very, very different. So take care. Talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.